very glad that you're here with us. Uh, if you're here uh, as part of the church family that's been here for a long time, again, welcome to you also. Um, we love you. We're glad you're here uh, on this Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day when we celebrate the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, making his claim to be the Messiah. And this is the, traditionally the beginning of what is called Holy Week. And I don't normally do this, or at least I don't do it often, but I want to recommend a book to you that I have been reading uh, as part of my own uh, devotional uh, life. Um, it's called Living the Cross-Centered Life by a guy named C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney is a pastor out in Maryland at Covenant Life Church out there. He's one of the good guys. Um, uh, there are a lot of uh, hucksters and charlatans and uh, other types of folks out there claiming to be pastors of the Church of Jesus Christ, but C.J. is not one of those. He is a presenter of the authentic gospel clearly taught and preached. And um, uh, living the cross-centered life is about keeping the gospel the main thing and looking at the... <laughs> the suffering and sacrifice and death of Christ as and how that sh how the reality of that sacrifice should have impact on how you make your decisions how you go through suffering how you conduct yourself in relationships with others it's a great book and the chapters are short uh, i'm doing a chapter a day i'm trying to stretch it out make it last you know uh, because i mean the whole book is like 95 pages and it's a little tiny book and chapters are short um, so I'm trying to make it last and just kind of savor it like a like a good steak or something, you know. Uh, this is great stuff, all right? So pick that up if you get a chance. Uh, it's cheap uh, and well worth your time, particularly as we anticipate Easter coming next week. The other thing as, um, as we're gathered here this morning, uh, I know that there are a lot of folks here who are new to Chillicothe Bible Church. Uh, new in the last year, new in the last six months, new in the last maybe two weeks. Um, and if you are new and you want to learn more about the church, uh, my wife Karen and I um, put on a new members class at least once a year at our home on a Sunday afternoon for about five weeks. You don't have to attend all the sessions, although we encourage you to do so. Uh, we feed you, we tell you about our commitments as a church about our vision for ministry, about um, our doctrinal statement. We talk through all the kinds of questions that a person might have about church, and we invite you and encourage you to become a member. You don't have to do that if you go to the class, but we encourage you and we invite you to consider that as, a, as an opportunity to be identified uh, with this church's public witness. Uh, that these are the ones who we are publicly identifying as people who have made public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and we as a church affirm that. And we also give them things like the right to vote at church meetings and, and that kind of thing. But it's because of, a, of, a, of the fact that we are certifying and testifying to, as a church, the conversion of these people who are members. Um. And not for any other reason. It isn't because this is the club of the best looking. Although, I mean, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but you understand what I'm saying. So we invite you and encourage you to participate in that. The first class starts in two weeks on April the 11th. Uh, if you are coming, 
If you have small children, in other words, you will need child care, please let us know as soon as possible so we can arrange adequate child care, okay? Uh, Karen will be there, uh, so she'll be able to provide part of that, but if we have a lot of kids, we'll need more than just her. So I um, encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, this week, we're going to take a detour. in our. We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. We're up to chapter 7, about the middle of chapter 7. Uh, but we're not going to touch that for two weeks. And the reason is, is that because it is Palm Sunday, I want to kind of detour off, get off on the off-ramp, go to a different gospel so that we can look at Palm Sunday and then next week we'll be in, I think, Matthew uh, to look at Matthew's account of the resurrection and the events surrounding that. Uh, And the reason that we're not going to jump ahead in Mark is because I want to do that chronologically in the months to come as we get there. Um, But that'll take us a while and so I want to save that for another day. But I want to pick up today in the Gospel of Luke. So if you, have your, um, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to look at Luke's account of the events of Palm Sunday and in the, in the, in the time immediately following that. Uh, we're going to kind of go through, normally I read the scripture that we're going to study uh, all in one chunk, but I'm not going to do that today. We're going to take it kind of a chunk at a time. So we'll be looking first at verses 28 to 38. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel records, you know that at least one of the things that Jesus has scrupulously avoided doing up to this point is making any direct, explicit claims out of his mouth to being the Messiah. If you read the story and you read the Gospel of Luke, in front of the crowds, Jesus never does that up to now. He never stands up and says, I am the Messiah, believe in me. When the, when the, uh, when the demons, you know, Jesus casts out a number of demons... And when they try to identify him as the Messiah, the Son of God, he says, shut up, be silent, come out of him, or her, or whoever. Um, And he avoids making any direct, explicit claim to being the Messiah. When he tells messianic parables, he explains those off to the side with his disciples. But in front of the crowd, he never does that. 
when Peter gives his good confession, the one that Jesus commends him for, he says, you, when, he, when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. And Peter, and Peter is told, that's exactly right. That's exactly who I am. God himself gave you that answer, Peter. That's the right answer. Three claps for you. Okay, That's exactly what you should think. But he never makes a similar statement to the crowd until now. And he's making it at the end of his ministry. Knowing that he's going to Jerusalem, he's headed up to Jerusalem for the feast. The Passover is coming. The Passover is one of three feasts that all Jews were commanded by the Old Testament law to go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and celebrate every year. And the Passover is one of the biggies. It's at the beginning of the year. This is the celebration of Jewish New Year, but it's also the celebration of the fact that God, in his judgment on the Egyptians, passed over the houses of those who had sacrificed the lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts. And that he had looked over their sons in exchange for the lamb whose blood they had spilled. And Jesus is going to reveal himself as the, the ultimate Passover lamb who enables God's death angel to look over our sin, to pass over our house. But before he does that, he's got to make it clear to people what they're about to do. And so they're coming up to these little villages of Bethphage and Bethany, which are about a mile outside of Jerusalem, uh, on, the, on the outside of town, on the other side of the Mount of Olives, which is just east of the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And he's coming up on these villages, and Jesus has friends there. Mary and Martha and Lazarus live in Bethany. Uh, there are undoubtedly other people that he knows that are friends there. And he, so he sends a couple of disciples, says, go get a donkey's colt, one that no one has ever ridden, and you'll find it in this particular place. Jesus was smart like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he knew things that... You couldn't possibly know, apart from the fact that he was God. Go up to this particular place, and you will find a colt of a donkey that no one has ever ridden. And go get it, and bring it back here. And if someone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and they'll let you take it. Okay. <laughs> so they go off, and they get the donkey's colt, and they bring it back. And uh, in doing this, Jesus is making an explicit claim to be the Messiah. Because in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this is how it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, every now and then you'll hear people criticize uh, the predictive prophecy elements of the Scriptures, and they'll say, well, you know, Jesus did a lot of things that were fulfillment of prophecy. That's true, but he had control over those things. This is one of the things he has control over. He could fulfill that prophecy of Zechariah simply by doing what Zechariah said, right? I'm like, well, yeah, just as an aside, by the way, there are a whole lot of things Jesus ostensibly had no control over if he's just a man, like where he'd be born, uh, who his parents would be, what lineage uh, he would have, the appearance of the angels to announce his coming, the appearance of the angels to announce 
uh, to the shepherds that he had come. The, uh, the formation or the presence of the star in the east, which the wise men saw and followed to get to Jesus. You know, a whole lot of stuff that was uh, predicted and then fulfilled that Jesus, if he was just a man, had no control over. Of course, we don't believe that he's just a man. But this is one of the things that Jesus is doing specifically to fulfill prophecy on purpose. He knows Zechariah. He knows that the people understand Zechariah too. Because a king, when he came in peace, came riding on a donkey. If you read about David and David's sons, they rode donkeys to get around. Poor people walked. But if you were wealthy, you had a donkey. And if you were a king who was coming to announce himself, you would have a special kind of donkey. One that no one had ever ridden. So in other words, it couldn't have been defiled by some lesser purpose like pulling a cart or something like this because the king was going to ride on this. And here the king of not only Israel but all of the universe is going to enter into Jerusalem. And so he's got to have the right mount, the one that Zechariah prophesied. And he is making his, his public announcement the one that every pious Jew who read their Bible would know, this is exactly what Jesus is claiming. To be the Messiah, the King who was to come. This is the moment his disciples have been waiting for and hoping for and praying for and wondering when this is going to happen. This is the moment. They know that Jesus has phenomenal power. They know that he has the ability to not just heal people, but to do things like actually raise the dead. He's done that to three people. Have been raised from the dead by this guy. And yet they're still kind of confused and wondering, does Jesus think he's the Messiah? Or is he just a mighty prophet like Elijah or Elisha, who also did some of the same kind of thing? But here it all becomes clear. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. And so they lay their cloaks, which is the best thing they've got available, on the back of the donkey for a saddle. And they throw, the, throw some in the road to make a kind of a red carpet uh, for Jesus to ride on and announce that he is coming. And people begin to cut palm branches. The text doesn't specifically mention this, but we know from the other Gospels that they did. They cut palm branches and laid them in the road also. And they began to shout from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 56, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They know their Bibles. They know that Messiah coming means not only the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, but they know that it means the establishment of the messianic kingdom and peace will reign over the entire earth as Messiah is acknowledged. They know that, that there is to be a son of David ruling from David's throne and it will be the beginning of God's kingdom when God himself rules. And rules in a way that has not happened since the fall of man happened in the Garden of Eden. Right? When God created the world, who ruled it? He did. 
and peace covered the earth. And everything was, as God said, very good. And then human beings fell into sin, and peace has not reigned since. Not in human relationships, not in our relationship to nature, not in our relationship within our own soul and within our own selves, not between people, not between groups of people and nations. Peace has not reigned since. But they are, they are recognizing Messiah has come, and so peace must be coming with it. And this is supposed to be the moment of triumph. But notice what happens next. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as they approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. In the midst of Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament, in the midst of what should be the inauguration day for his reign as king, the restored Davidic king to reign on David's throne and to bring peace not just to Jerusalem but to the entire earth, In the midst of all of that, something shocking occurs. And it's so subtle, you might miss it. Who's doing the shouting? Who's doing the shouting? Look back, verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples in other words this isn't the nationwide gigantic embrace of jesus coming that maybe a lot of us picture this is a few people relatively speaking this is people who are already disciples of jesus maybe the group is just the 12 we don't know Maybe the group is that that group of 120 that were gathered in the upper room at Pentecost that formed the nucleus of the earliest church. We don't know. But what we do know is who is doing the shouting and the announcing of the coming of Jesus is not the nation as a whole. It's the disciples of Jesus. And so Jesus is told by the Pharisees, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And when he comes up to town, you know what's really startling? No one even noticed. No one even noticed. It's as if the entire Old Testament prophecy points to this day of the coming of Messiah to reign as king.
and nothing happened. The nation did not spontaneously rise up and embrace their Messiah. They didn't. They didn't even notice. They just ignored what was going on outside the gates of the city they were in. There are over a million people probably in Jerusalem at this time, and there are probably less than 500 outside it celebrating the coming king. And so Jesus says this. He announces the coming of judgment. That because they have rejected peace, instead they will be war. That because they have rejected him in his first coming, that they won't receive him until his second coming. And they regarded Jesus as an interesting prophet, to be sure, but not the Messiah. And their reaction wasn't so much active rejection as it was just passive indifference. You know, Jesus, we, you know, all that's very good and all, but, you know, I've heard about those miracles you did up in Galilee and on in the Decapolis and around the, the lake and even up in Tyre and Sidon. But, you know, this is Jerusalem. This is the big town, bud. And you've got to be exciting to make it splash here. And besides that, I mean, Passover is coming. We've got a lot of, a lot of important religious stuff to do. So just tamp down on that messianic stuff. Go heal some more people, but leave us alone. We've got more important things to worry about. And Jesus says because of their indifference and their ignoring the coming of the one to whom all of their Bibles pointed, the one to whom the feast they were about to celebrate pointed, that judgment will come. And judgment does come in 70 A.D., just as Jesus said that it would. The Romans built an embankment on the city. They encircled her with troops, and they leveled the town. In fact, where the temple stood, they set the temple on fire, and then they pried apart all the rocks to get at the gold that had melted down between the stones. And there was not one stone left on another. The entire city is leveled just as Jesus said would happen. Because they did not recognize the coming of God into their midst. And then it gets worse. This is also shocking. Uh, If you pick up in verse 45, then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And one day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will ask you a question, tell me. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? 
But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. All of the gospel writers, every one of them, records Jesus coming and cleansing the temple. He took a whip and he drove all of the money changers out of the outer court of the temple. And they were, they were there because they were trying to illicitly make money off of people who had come in to worship God. The Jews in the Old Testament were created as a people to be a light to all the other nations. So that, as Deuteronomy said, uh, people around them might look and say, what people has ever had a God so near that he lives among them? And what nation of people has ever had laws so wise? And what group of people has ever lived by such a magnificent body of revealed truth? And that they would see the transformed lives of the people who lived in accordance with the law and into relationship with God and worshipped Him at the temple where the Shekinah glory dwelt. And they were to worship. And they were to come as the Queen of Sheba did from far away and say, Truly, the living God dwells among his people here. And so every plan for the temple included not just the inner court where the sacrifices were made, uh, but also a large outer court called the court of the Gentiles, where all those who were to be attracted by the glory of the living God were to come and worship. And this is the place where they have set up shop. And what they're doing is making money on the exchange rate. And they're saying, look here, you've come from out of town. Ah, you have uh, denarii. You have, um, you have uh, you know, other kinds of money. You have dollars. You have euros, whatever, okay, to put it in modern terms, okay. You have renminbi. You have yen. Ah, but you need temple shekels to buy a temple sacrifice with a temple lamb. And they're making money on the exchange rate. Didn't matter that the value of the gold in the in the coin was the same. We're we're gonna we're gonna you know have a little side business and you know take advantage of people's opportunity to worship God here. And Jesus takes a whip and he goes through cleaning these guys out. And it's been common here in in recent years for for. Uh, Bible teachers to comment on the fact that Jesus was a manly man to do this. And that's, that's true, okay? Uh, because remember, within the temple, there are temple guards who are authorized actually by the Roman government to kill anyone who desecrates the worship of God in this place. And these temple guards don't mess with Jesus. He's in there knocking over tables and throwing money and getting crazy on these guys with a whip and nobody messes with Jesus but that emphasis is missing the point of why Jesus is doing this it's because it's part of his claiming of his identity as king if you read the book of kings or of chronicles 
this is, you know, this after Leviticus, if you make it through there and you're through the Bible in a year, this is where Kings and Chronicles is where Bible reading plans go to die um, for a lot of people. But it's actually worth reading because you see kings that were faithful and kings that were unfaithful and how God treated the nation in each case. But the good kings... One of the things they always did, and one of, the things, one of the ways you could tell a good king versus a bad one is that he would go into the temple and cleanse the place. Hezekiah did it. Josiah did it. There were other kings who did it. Jehoshaphat did it. He got rid of any idolatry. He got rid of any paganism. He got rid of it. And here, the idol is not some statue of Baal or something else. It's money. And so Jesus, as a good king, is going in and he's doing his job as a good king and getting rid of this. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law who do not recognize Jesus as king, what do they do? Well, two things. Number one, they start plotting against him at a more intense level than before. This is the start of where, uh, the process whereby they identify Judas as somebody who's also motivated by money and buy him off to sell Jesus out to them. But also they come before him in public while he's teaching and preaching, and they say, hey, dude, who do you think you are? What gives? Who gave you the authority to walk in here and knock over our stuff? And Jesus says, well, that's a good question. Let me ask you one. <laughs> Where did John's baptism come from? John baptized people for repentance. Where did his authority come from? Did it come from men or from God? Now, this puts these guys in a fix because they've done this out in public, and there's all kinds of people gathered around. And they say, well, we're in a fix, boys, because if we say from God then he's going to say, well, how come you didn't believe him then, genius? <laughs> right? Genius is not in there. That's kind of my, my, my addition. But, um, <laughs> but how come you didn't believe them then? I didn't, why didn't you believe John? He announced my coming. Remember? But if we say from men... All the people will turn us into a rock pile and stone us because they believe that John was a prophet. Was John a prophet? Yes. Were the people right? Yes. Were these people hardened? Yes, they were. And their reaction is not one of just passive indifference or just ignoring the fact that Jesus has come as Messiah, just as the prophets had said, and fulfilled everything that the prophets had said about the coming of Messiah except for the conquering uh, over the enemies of Israel. That part is yet future. But he has fulfilled all of these prophecies. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is fulfilled. He's come in announcing who he is, and they go, who are you? And he says, so where's John get his authority from? And they say, well, let's see. Uh, can't give a good answer here, so uh, we don't know. And his response is, 
then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. In other words, guys, you are not this stupid. You know darn good and well where it came from, and mine comes from the same spot. This passage, Jesus is making it clear that these guys are not ignorant, that they have actively rejected the coming of the Messiah, that the king came and they would rather be an authority themselves than submit to God in the flesh. And so they're culpable. Their question, even in asking the question, never mind all the plotting his death and all of that, but even in asking the question, they're implying, we don't think that you are who you claim to be. We don't believe you to be the rightful Messiah, the son of David, the king. We don't believe that. We reject you. And so judgment will come on them, on the city, on the temple that they perform services at. One day it will be restored with Jesus as not only king, but great high priest. And on this Palm Sunday, Jesus' identity and his authority is still an issue for us today. Because Jesus presents himself, even today, as Messiah and King, with the right to rule, not just over you and me, although that's part of it, but the right to rule over the entire earth. And there are three reactions that people have, just as they had here, three reactions. One reaction is passive indifference. It's, oh yes, I've heard this story before. This is the part where Jesus comes in and, you know, wasn't it cute when the kids came in and waved palm branches to remember the fact that Jesus has come and people did wave palm branches and shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't that cool? Yes, it is. It's very cool that Jesus did make his announcement that he is the Messiah. But unless he is your Messiah, you may be reacting with passive indifference and saying, ho-hum, oh yes, very nice, part of the tradition, worth celebrating, Uh, what's next, what's on TV this afternoon? And there are other people, and you do encounter these folks, although very often you don't encounter them at church. Uh, people who, are, who respond to Jesus' announcement that he is Messiah with active rejection. Just like the chief priests and the Pharisees, they say, we know who Jesus claims to be. We know he claims to be the Son of God, the great I Am. We know he claims to be the one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time, forever. We know all that. However, we don't believe that. We despise that. We revile that. We think Jesus was a huckster and a fraud who led the people astray. We want nothing to do with him. And the people were right when they said crucify because this man was a deceiver and a liar or otherwise he was a legend made up by the disciples. 
who were hucksters and frauds. And you get that as a reaction. And then you get the reaction of Jesus' disciples. The one that I hope that all of you are having, have had, will have. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord of celebratory submission. That out of their joy, the disciples laid their cloaks, the best part of their clothing, on the back of the donkey so that Jesus the King would have something soft to ride on. And those who didn't have the ability to do that threw them in the road saying that the best that I have to offer to King Jesus is not worthy to be trod on by his donkey. Of celebrating the fact that the king has come and that I am bowing not not only my knee, not only my heart, but my life to serve the king who has come as Messiah. And if you are someone who today has never done that, if you have never come to the place where you have said, I acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, my Savior, the King who was to come, and who did come, and who is coming again, you've never done that. May I invite you to do that today, to recognize that as you stand before a holy God, you are just as worthy of judgment as these people who rejected him You are just as worthy of judgment. You are just as worthy of being sent to hell. And there would be nothing unjust about God doing that to you and with you. You've never done that and said, God, forgive me for my sin. Because up to now in my life, I have not recognized the coming of God to my life. You've never done that. Do that today. As the scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not turn away. Recognize and bow before the Messiah. If you have done that, however, then I encourage you to ask yourself this question. Are you still joyfully proclaiming the coming of Messiah? anyone who will listen. The disciples are making fools of themselves in the eyes of everybody around as they say, look, here is the Messiah. This is the one. He is the one who was to come. He's here. Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And the world says to us today, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up already. We don't want to hear any more about you. But Jesus calls us to continue celebrating the fact that he has come, that he, as we'll see next week, has made sacrifice for sin and has been raised from the dead and offers forgiveness for sin and a resurrection from the dead to all who follow him. It is the greatest message to proclaim that has ever been, will ever be. 
and we are to experience joy just like they did. The king is here, and he is still here. He is still reigning. His kingdom is not yet visible, but it is here among his people. And we are to announce it and spread it and reach out and bring others into it. So that on the day when he returns in glory, not riding on a donkey, but this time on a war horse, that we ride with him for the establishment of justice and peace on the earth. And we are to bring people into that kingdom and to joyfully announce it. And if you're not joyfully announcing it to anybody, why not? This is the only thing that's worth celebrating that has ever happened in human history. Compared with this, your marriage, the birth of a child, the birth of quadruplets, uh, the inauguration of your favorite president, none of this matters in comparison with Jesus has come. The Messiah is here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.